Hey everyone, oh, welcome to Crime Castle episode 2. Um, before I start, I kind of want to just say, first of all, thank you to those of you who have listened. I did see my stats and unbelievably there's people that have actually listened to me. So if you're listening to this one, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, also very embarrassed because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I did the best job on my first one, but, um, it's okay. I mean, I, I'm growing, I'm learning. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into podcasting that I didn't anticipate and I have a lot of anxiety. So I often stop, um, breathing (laughs) <laughs> so I know it's a basic human function, but I have a I have a hard time with that. So to breathe and talk at the same time is pretty difficult for me, and that's just one of those challenges that I've figured I'm, I'm like I'm having a hard time with that with as far as podcasting goes. I think at some point I will probably redo the Black Dahlia just because she's one of my favorite cases and. I think it was probably a mistake to do that one first, but, um, but anyway, too late. So thank you to those of you who have listened to me. If you want to send me an email, you can send me an email at crimecastlepod at gmail.com or send me a Twitter at crimecastlepod. Let me know, um, if you want to request a case, if you have any additional information, if you just want to talk about it, whatever, send me an email. So I'm, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to get started. So this episode is on Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo, aka the Ken and Barbie killers. This episode will take place in Canada. Um, the press gave Paul and Carla the name Ken and Barbie killers because they were attractive and blonde. Um, I think it's in poor taste, but whatever. Carla and Paul met when Carla went to a pet convention. She was really into animals and wanted to, you know, she wanted that to be her career. She was only 17 years old at the time that she met him and he was 23. Um, So just my own opinion, I think that's red flag number one. He's uh, 23, she's 17, and that's a pretty big age difference as far as developmentally so that same night they had sex at the hotel they were at and they started a relationship it was sort of a long distance relationship because they lived something like 80 miles away from each other but paul would make the drive to visit her every weekend um, because he lived all the way in scarborough so this becomes kind of important later they realized they were into snm with carla being submissive to paul and This also comes into play because Carla seems to do whatever Paul wants in regards to their sex life, which normally in a, in a normal S&M relationship, you know, S&M is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. However, between these two, it seems like they, you know, it doesn't seem like, I don't know why I'm using those words. It's, they took it too far. I think in a way it's an excuse for what they did or it was just, it was, um, they just took it to a different level. Anyway, so her parents loved him and they were soon engaged. 
They were spending most of their time with Carla's family, and this started Paul's obsession with uh, her younger 15-year-old sister, Tammy. In 1990, Paul took Tammy across the border to the U.S. to get beer for a party, and he told Carla that they, um, that they got drunk and started making out. Before I go on with this story, I'm going to backtrack a little and go into Paul's history, uh, and then I'll come back around to their relationship. Paul's father was a convicted sexual abuser, and he had actually raped his own daughter um, and another young minor girl. And his mom was so depressed by all of the abuse and the whole situation that she just wasn't present. And she moved to the basement of their home and wasn't involved with the family. I don't really see why she did that. I don't see why she wouldn't just leave the house. The only thing that makes sense to me is maybe it was a financial situation. It just made more sense for her to stay there. But if things were as bad as, you know, if they were that bad, you would think she would just leave. But I don't I don't know exactly the circumstances. When Paul turned 16, his mother told him he was a product of an affair and this completely disgusted Paul. He started talking really bad about her openly. He just, he lost all respect for her. This, I think, is significant because I think, well, as a mother, I would assume that she knows her son and she would know that he would not like that, those, knowing that fact. So I'm not sure why she told him. I don't know why she felt the need to um, say those words. I don't know if it was to get back at the dad. I don't know, but I, I just find that to be odd. And I also find it odd that he took such an offense to that. But I think it's it's probably just an accumulation of everything he's been taught with the way his father was and how he treated women and then how his mom is sort of just taking it all. So his exes said that he used to beat, whenever he dated somebody, he would enjoy beating them and humiliating them in public. And I think, as I was saying, I think his father probably taught him to be like a sexual deviant or showed him, how, showed him to disrespect women. And obviously the father didn't respect the mom. And I think Paul absorbed all of this. And then the mom taught him that women are sort of just pathetic and useless and kind of just there for the taking. I think those are the lessons he, they taught him. Paul was good-looking and charming, and people thought he was a good guy. But by the late 80s, he would go on to become a rapist. And that sounded a little dramatic. I feel like I need to dun-dun-dun. Uh, so at this point, I'm going to list some rapes here because um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. And they're also pretty brazen, so I just I want you to get a feel for who Paul is separately from um, his relationship with Carla. So here we go. On May 4th, 1987, Paul followed a 21-year-old woman and raped her in front of her parents' house. Um, in front of her parents' house, meaning in the public view of the whole neighborhood. On May 14th, 1987, he raped a 19-year-old girl in the backyard of her, parents' um, of her parents' house. So again, it's in the yard. It's public, even though this, this time it's 
the backyard but still really public and then again on july 17th 1987 he beat a young woman and then attempted to rape her but he abandoned the attack when she when she fell back luckily for her she escaped on september 29th 1987 paul attempted to rape a 15 year old girl it's really creepy how he did this he broke into her room jumped on her back put his hand over her mouth, threatened her with a knife, bruised the side of her face, and bit her ear. It's pretty fucking aggressive, and I think it's also scary because he's attacking all these girls inside their home or, like, right outside of their home. He doesn't even know what's going on on the inside or the outside. He's just attacking them when he sees the opportunity, and I feel like that's another special type of criminal because they, they're they not worried about the consequences or, you know, I don't know, somebody who's willing to just break into your house or rape you in the front yard is that's pretty scary paul fled when the victim's mother entered the room and screamed so yeah so luckily the mom heard the commotion and she came into the room so paul ended up running away the sad thing about it is this young boy named anthony hanmeyer was charged with uh, sexual assault for that attack in 1989 and served a 16 month prison sentence he was exonerated after paul admitted to the crime but he didn't admit it until 2006 so for 17 years he was blamed for a crime he didn't commit and i know that that's something that happens i think everybody in a way is a little bit afraid of that happening to them um you kind of think well how can it if if there's no evidence there shouldn't be people locked up for crimes they didn't commit but it happens and here's here's an example on December 16, 1987, he raped a 15-year-old girl. On December 17, the police sent out a warning to all young women of Scarborough to not travel alone at, at night, especially women riding the bus. On December 23, 1987, he raped a 17-year-old girl. At this point, he began to be known as the Scarborough Rapist. On April 18, 1988, Paul attacked a 17-year-old girl. On May 25, 1988, Paul was nearly caught by an ununiformed Metro Toronto investigator staking out a bus shelter. The investigator noticed Paul hiding under a tree, under a tree and pursued him on foot, but Paul escaped. If only he was caught at that moment. On May 30, 1988, Paul raped an 18-year-old woman in Ontario, about 25 miles away. On October 4th, 1988, he attempted to rape a young woman in Scarborough. Although his intended victim fought him off, he inflicted two stab, wound, stab wounds to her thigh and butt, which, which required 12 stitches. On November 16th, 1988, he raped an 18-year-old girl in the backyard of her parents' house, again with the yards. On November 17th, 1988, the Metro Police formed a, ta a task force to capture the Scarborough rapist. On December 27, 1988, he attempted another rape, but a neighbor chased Paul off. On June 20, 1989, he again attempted to rape a young woman, but she fought, and her screams alerted neighbors. Paul fled with scratches on his face. On August 15, 1989, he raped a 22-year-old woman. On November 21, 1989, he raped a 15-year-old girl. He saw her in a bus shelter and followed her. On December 22, 1989, he raped a 19-year-old woman. On May 26, 1990, he raped a 19-year-old woman, and luckily, this woman was able to vividly remember her attacker's face 
and police were able to create a computer composite portrait. So two days later, on May 28th, the police released the portrait and it was published in newspapers. On November 20th, 1990, police interviewed Paul. They received tips from his friends that Paul Bernardo looked exactly like the portrait. The detectives questioned him for about 35 minutes and took his DNA. The only bad thing is, throughout their whole investigation, they had submitted 130 DNA samples. So, Paul was not immediately linked to any other crimes. When the detectives asked Paul why he thought he was being questioned for rape, he told them he thought he resembled the portrait. The police found him credible and did not suspect him any further. This is where it's kind of messed up. They had him right in front of the, he was right in front of them. He acted cool as a cucumber. He thought that when he gave his DNA, they would catch him, but he he didn't act like he was nervous at all, even though he was. And I think that's that's what let him to they didn't suspect him at all. So he was able to just walk away. So at this point, Paul and Carla were engaged, but she supposedly didn't know he was a Scarborough rapist. So I guess at this point, I'm just going to back into their relationship. So Bernardo alleges early on in their relationship, he asked her what she would think if he told her he was a rapist. And reportedly, Carla responded to him, quote, that would be cool. Eager to impress her older and more experienced boyfriend, Carla produced a set of handcuffs and suggested that Paul use them on her. She also let him gag her, put a dog collar around her neck, and engage in strangulation play while they had sex. Although Carla was willing to do just about anything to please Paul, a sexually experienced teen wasn't quite what he was looking for. Paul Bernardo was into virgins. Another dun-dun-dun. Paul was very resentful of the fact that Carla was not a virgin, and he made it very clear to her how disappointing it was to him. That's This whole idea of the virgins and him being upset that she wasn't one is really annoying because they had sex the first night they met, and he asked her to be his girlfriend. So he clearly doesn't have an issue with her not being a virgin. and I, So none of it makes any sense, and to me, I think it's clearly an excuse or a way to open the door to get her to not have a problem with him being into the uh, engaging in sexual activities with other women i think it's stupid if she really believed that that i don't know if she believed that excuse i it, i find it hard to believe that she would just think it made sense because it clearly doesn't so he started making it very clear to Carla that he was interested in her sister, Tammy, especially because she was a virgin, unlike Carla. Paul would watch Tammy through her window, and at some point, um, Tammy actually helped Paul to do, like, the, to spy on her, basically. She, she actually broke Tammy's window so he could go into the room at night and masturbate while Tammy slept. It's so fucking creepy, and I don't know, I, I feel like... If it was me, I'm a pretty heavy sleeper, so maybe I wouldn't have noticed either. But it's just crazy that she never noticed him. And I feel like he must have made noise. And then I wonder, how often did he do it? So at this point is when I really start to hate Carla. Because she's she's helping somebody violate her own little sister who she's supposed to protect. So she's just an asshole. At one point, Paul says Carla stole some Valium from her job at the animal clinic and laced uh, Tammy's food with it. 
Tammy lost consciousness and Paul then raped Tammy. But Tammy ended up waking up, so the rape only lasted about a minute. From what I know, she had no idea anything. She was sexually assaulted. And again, like, Carla's just a big asshole because she's the one who drugged Tammy. And if it wasn't for her, she wouldn't, like, that rape wouldn't have been possible. So I think Carla's the most to blame in this situation. Throughout that summer, Paul would give Tammy and her friends gifts, food and soft drinks that had, quote, film and a few white plaques on the top. So when I first read that, I wonder, does that mean the white flecks, the white flecks were drugs? Does that mean it was sperm? I'm, I'm a little confused on what those specs were. So if anybody has an idea, let me know. On December 23rd, 1990, the family was having a special occasion Christmas dinner and allowed Tammy to have some alcohol. Carla had ground up some sleeping pills and put it in Tammy's spaghetti. Tammy started to slur and stated she was seeing double, but nobody thought it was suspicious or got concerned because she was young and she wasn't used to drinking, so they just thought she got tipsy fast. When it was time to go to sleep, Tammy said she wanted to stay up and watch a movie with Paul and Carla. So once everybody had gone to sleep, they all three of them stayed up and watched uh, this movie called Lisa and the Devil. They were watching the movie for a little while. After about 20 minutes, she ended up losing consciousness. And that's when Carla took some halothane that she had stolen from the clinic and soaked a cloth with it. She put the cloth to Tammy's nose and mouth to make sure that Tammy wouldn't wake up and interrupt like the last time. She wanted to give Paul Tammy's virginity as a gift for Christmas, which is so ridiculous, weird, and sick, and it, it, there's honestly no words. She planned it, she did it, she made it possible, and then she tried to wrap it up as if it's some kind of gift for Christmas. That's, it's, that's just weird. I don't know. So they ended up recording this entire rape on videotape. And um, they both raped her in the basement of the family home, and they each took turns raping her while the other one watched. Eventually, Tammy vomited and choked. They tried to revive her, but it didn't work, so they began to dress her and hide all the evidence and place Tammy's body in her bedroom. They started vacuuming and doing laundry in the middle of the night. Finally, when they had cleaned everything, they decided to call 911. They noticed that Tammy had a burn on her face, and when they asked what it was, Carla and Paul said it was a rug burn from trying to revive her. Um, so if you go to Google and you look up the picture of Tammy uh, during her autopsy, you will see the picture of the burn. In that picture, it is 100% clear that that is a chemical burn. The fact that they sit there and tell these, um, these you know, the 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 medical responders of what is it called the first responders that it was from a rug is ridiculous because I, I just look at the picture it looks like a chemical burn 100 percent. tammy was pronounced dead at saint catherine's general hospital she never regained consciousness the coroner accepted Carla and Paul's version of events and ruled tammy's death an accident he said she choked on her vomit after consuming alcohol so this coroner is obviously an idiot because, like I said, that burn is absolutely clearly a chemical burn and there's no way a rug would have made that type of burn. And it's pretty big. It's a pretty big burn. Also, if they were trying to revive her on the carpet, why why did her, why was the burn on her face where it was? It, it just doesn't make any sense. 
Uh, I don't know, that coroner's stupid. After Tammy's death, Paul and Carla moved into their own home. On June 7th, 1991, Carla invited a 15-year-old girl who she had made friends with at a pet shop two years earlier to a girl's night out. This girl was referred to as Jane Doe at the trials. Carla and Jane spent the evening uh, shopping and dining, and Carla gave her a bunch of alcohol laced with halcyon. When Jane lost consciousness, she called Paul, and she told him that she had a surprise wedding gift for him. When he came home, Paul recorded Carla raping the girl, and after he sexually assaulted her himself. Again, Carla's planning and executing these rapes. Again, it's like some weird gift. It also seems like Paul had no idea Carla was planning it, so it's very clear to me that she's making the conscious choice to rape these girls and it's not that she's being expected to do it she's choosing to do it the next morning uh, jane doe was nauseated but thought that her vomiting was from drinking alcohol for the first time and she didn't realize that she had been sexually assaulted in august jane doe was, was invited back to spend the night and was again drugged she stopped breathing while being raped so carla called 911 for help Carla called back a few minutes later to say that, quote, everything is all right, and the ambulance was recalled without follow-up. Jane Doe survived. On the night of June 15, 1991, Paul saw a 14-year-old girl named Leslie Mahaffey. They started talking, and she told him that her parents had locked her out of, the, out of her house because she broke curfew. At this point, she asked him for a cigarette, and Paul ended up forcing her into his car, and he blindfolded her. He took her back to his house that he shared with Carla. So at this point, I feel like she must know he's the Scarborough rapist or she must at least start to put pieces together or think. I mean, she's got to be suspicious of something. Um, he did this without her. He took her to the house. It's obviously not some little game that they have together. He held her hostage for 24 hours. During this time, Carla and Paul repeatedly raped and tortured her. Again, they videotaped the whole attack. The next day, they killed her. Paul says that Carla gave her a lethal dose of halcyon, and Carla says that Paul str strangled her. Nonetheless, they put her body in their basement. Before I say the next fucked up part, I just want to say that I think it was her idea to kill to kill her because Paul never had killed his victims. Um, he only started killing once Carla became involved. Their first victim together was Tammy, and I feel like Carla was jealous. I think Paul was really into Tammy, and that it was like a threat to Carla. And so she let him have what he wanted, but then she took her away because she wanted to be the only one. She wanted him to herself, basically. And I think going on, when they started doing these crimes together, it was the same thing. I think she felt jealous. She had her fun and then killed them so that there, he wouldn't get attached to anyone or lose interest in her. But the, uh, this is all just my opinion. They put her body in the basement and then the next day, Carla's family came to their home for Sunday dinner. The whole time while they're over there having Sunday dinner, having a great time, Leslie's body was just lying in the basement. They just acted like everything was fine, which is psychotic. After the family left, Paul dismembered her body with a circular saw and uh, put her body parts in cement blocks. Carla and Paul took the cement blocks and threw them into Lake Gibson. Two weeks later, they get married, and on, and on the day of their wedding, the same day of their wedding, some fishermen discover Leslie's body in the cement blocks. Isn't that crazy? Like, what are the chances? The same day... They get married, the, her, Leslie's body is found. On April 19th, 1992, 
Paul and Carla start driving to look for a, quote, sex slave. They found 15-year-old Kristen French on her way home from school, and Carla asked Paul, what about her? It seemed like Paul liked Kristen a lot and held her captive for three days. Well, this reminds me, I don't, I don't remember which victim it was, but I read somewhere that there was one victim where Paul had her in the house and they were drinking, and then Carla came home and she found them on the couch, you know, sort of having a good time. And so Carla felt so jealous that after they raped her and, of course, recorded it and the whole thing, she decided that it would be best to kill her. Because remember that Paul wanted a sex slave. He wanted somebody to be there. Carla convinced him it was better to kill her, to, to get her away. So I think, I think it's jealousy. Kristen endured the same thing that Leslie did. She was raped, tortured, and humiliated. humiliated. Again, the couple videotaped the whole thing. Paul forced Kristen to say that she loved him, and he also made her watch her parents on the news, pleading for her safe return. Just imagine, he made her sit there in front of the TV and watch her parents crying and begging for her to come back safe. That's so sad, so mean. So Kristen did everything that she was told, hoping that uh, she'd be let go, but unfortunately, on April 19th, they killed her. Again, Paul wants to say that Carla killed her and that he went to go get the three of them dinner and um, that's when Carla killed her and then Carla wants to blame Paul and say she watched Paul strangle, strangle her with an electrical cord. So it's a he said, she said situation to me. Like I said, it makes sense that Carla was the one who did it, but we don't know for sure. So then they repeated the same thing. They left her in the basement. They went um, back upstairs. They showered, got dressed, and then they went to Easter dinner with Carla's family. Again, acting like nothing happened, having a good old time. When they came back, uh, they washed her body and cut off all her hair. They then dumped her body less than a kilometer away from where Leslie was buried. At this point, two years have passed since Paul was interviewed for the Scarborough rape case. So the detectives had slowly been testing the DNA samples. And like I said, they had hundreds of them. And so at this point, they finally, they finally got a match to Paul, which, like I mentioned earlier, at this point, he had no idea. I mean, he thought he got away with it. He thought that he, he thought he would never get caught because he had given his DNA sample years ago. And he was convinced that they were going to come for him. So he did wait and he expected them to come and he waited and waited, but they never came. And so he thought he was free and clear. And I think by this point, it was all pretty much behind him. He, he didn't think much of it. So he didn't suspect anything. On December 27th, he severely beat Carla. He beat her on the limbs, head, and face with a flashlight. She ended up going back to work on January 4th, 1993 and claimed she had been in a car accident. Luckily for everybody, her co-workers were very skeptical and so they called her parents and i just want to say that's really rare and that like her co-workers were on their shit and that's really good because maybe and most co-workers would have noticed and asked and maybe not believed her but these co-workers took action they actually called her parents i mean how many co-workers would do that i i just that makes me wonder why they thought well, to be honest, it was pretty bad, but I just I fi I just want to know why they felt they needed to take it that far. My coworkers never knew how to contact my parents, so I just find that interesting. Although her parents rescued her the following day by physically removing her from the house, Carla went back in, frantically searching for something. I think she was searching for the tapes 
which is kind of stupid because those tapes are important to your freedom. So you'd think that you'd take better care of them and know where they are, but I guess we're not that smart over here. Her parents took her to St. Catherine's and she filed a police report stating that she was a battered wife and she filed charges against Paul. You can Google the picture of her um, after she was beat and it's, it's pretty brutal. Her eyes look like raccoon eyes and they're super purple. And she just has these huge bruises and it, it looks really bad. You should check it out if you're interested. That must have been a crazy fight. He was arrested for that, but later was released. So once the police ended up getting that DNA match, they placed Paul under 24-hour surveillance. And this is why I said he had no idea. He, had, he didn't suspect anything. He thought he got away with it, but he was being watched. The police also then spoke to Carla on February 9th, 1993, and asked her about her husband, but Carla didn't want to say anything. The only thing she wanted to talk about was about the fact that he abused her. After her interview with police, she ended up going that night to her aunt and uncle, and she told them that Paul was the Scarborough rapist and that she and Paul were responsible for the death of Leslie and Kristen and that they had recorded it on video. So because of all this new information, Tammy's death was actually reopened, thank God, because, you know, they actually had the sense to say, you know what, maybe this one's related too. And they didn't leave it like a fucking accident, rug burn, vomit, choking on some alcohol. Stupid. It was at this point about two days later that she said she was open to make a deal with the prosecutors. She claimed that she would abuse no, she claimed he would abuse her and force her to play a role in these murders. And again, it's upsetting because they actually just automatically believed her. And I get why, because she actually was beaten up by him. But then later they find out that everything was just bullshit, that she was scamming everybody pretty much. And so I just feel like when somebody like her claims abuse, um, it adds this stigma. When a woman claims that she's being abused... I feel like it just people will think it's an excuse or a way to blame a man or to not take responsibility and like there's all this negative stigma on it that makes people not believe them and I think that's not fair to those women who are victims and they actually have to fight these stereotypes and many times they're not believed and sometimes they even are not able to go through with getting any kind of help because they're not being believed so they give up. George Walker was um, the one who facilitated a deal where Carla would plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter and she would serve a predetermined sentence of 10 years for all of her crimes, killing three people 10 years. Very nice. And she was also put under 24-hour surveillance. The terms of the deal were that she would to be granted this deal as long as she didn't cause any of the deaths herself and that she would provide full disclosure in her roles in the crime when testifying at Paul's trial. So I think this is why both of them are kind of going, well, no, to be honest, I think this is why she kept trying to say Paul strangled her, Paul did this, to say it wasn't me, basically. And Paul didn't really have anything to lose at that point, so I, I believe that he was the one being honest, and it was Carla who killed the, the girls. The police searched the home for 71 days and they didn't find any of the tapes due to limitations on the search warrants. They did end up finding one video where Carla is seen performing oral sex on Jane Doe, but they didn't find any of the other ones. The prosecutors had no idea that Carla enjoyed these attacks. 
they didn't know her actual involvement. They, they didn't know how, how much she contributed to them. On May 14th, her deal was finalized and Carla started giving the police statements. She just started spilling the beans. She told the police that Paul had raped 30 women, which was more than half of what they even knew of. Um, so they thought that she was going to give them all the information they needed to put him away for a long time. Spoiler, doesn't... Anyway, well, we'll see right now. In February 1994, Carla divorced Paul. After that, he was tried for the murders of Leslie and Kristen in 1995. His trial included detailed testimony from Carla and some videotapes of the rapes. Paul testified that the deaths were accidental, and then later he claimed that his wife was the actual killer, not him. I don't know, like I said, I don't think he had too much to lose. I think it's... She had more of a motive than he did to kill them, so I, I think it was her. But she wanted that deal so she couldn't admit to it. And there was no evidence to prove she was the one that did it. So it kind of worked out in her favor, I guess. On September 1st, 1995, Paul was convicted of a number of offenses, including the two first-degree murders and two aggravated sexual assaults. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was designated a, da a dangerous offender, making him unlikely to ever be released. So in the plea bargain that Carla got, it was 10 years for manslaughter, and she did end up testifying against Paul in his murder trial. So this plea bargain, it was criticized by many, many Canadians because the Paul's first defense lawyer, his name was Ken Murray, he withheld those videotapes for 17 months. Had they known what was in those tapes, they wouldn't have given her that plea deal. Those tapes were considered crucial evidence, and the prosecutor said that they wouldn't have, they would never have agreed to the plea bargain if they had seen the tapes. They really thought, they were really relying on Carla's testimony, but they didn't know that they didn't need it. They, the tapes were enough, but that one lawyer, he kept them from seeing them, so they made the deal final before the discovery of the tapes, and so she, get, she ended up getting just 10 years for everything. They did, however, add two additional years for Tammy's death, but she wasn't officially charged for her involvement in her sister's death, so total she got 12 years. Her plea deal was dubbed the deal with the devil by the press, and like I said, everybody was just really mad about it. They're still mad about it. She's one of the most hated women in, in Canada. While she was in prison, somehow some photos leaked, and they showed that she was having a great time. She In her picture, she's like smiling. She's got like these little projects. She looks like she's in, um, like in, a, what is it called? Like a, like a, oh my god. It looks like she's in a, like a dorm. Sorry. She looks like she's in a dorm, um, not a prison. And so when the public became aware of these pictures and the way she was living, everybody was really mad. And they called for, like, they started to protest. So then they had to move her, but they didn't know where. So they ended up moving her to a men's prison. And while she was at the men's prison, she ended up coming in contact with an inmate named Jean-Paul Gerbet. He was in prison for, get this, strangling his girlfriend in a jealous rage. I don't know, she's obviously having, she has a type or something, this girl's toxic. Uh, reportedly, he and Carla started an affair and they would exchange nude photos, notes, and underwear. 
Carla was released from prison on July 4th, 2005. She is, like I said, one of the most hated women in Canada. She's so hated that when she was released, she applied to uh, have a name change, but they denied it. But then, sneaky little bitch, I don't want to say it, but she's a bitch. A year later, she ended up marrying Thierry Bordelais, who was a relative of her lawyer, Sylvie Bordelais. Her lawyer's relative married her a year after she was released from prison for killing and raping three young girls, one of them being her own sister. I don't understand why he would marry her. It's so odd. Um, When they got married, she was able to change her name, and that kind of gave her a little bit privacy and anonymity. So less than two years after her release, she had a baby boy, and then later she ended up having two more children, which is disgusting. It's, It's so wrong. I like this might seem over the top, but I don't think so. I mean, I just, so there's this transcript of a sex tape that they made. It's Paul and Carla and it's shortly after Tammy's death and they're talking about her death and, and, and what they did and, and some other things. But in that transcript, you can read Paul. and So Carla tells Paul that she wanted to have kids. She wanted to have four kids so that she and Paul can abuse them together. She basically wanted kids to just abuse them so that she could just abuse them. Um, like little sex slaves is what she, that she had in mind. Um, so I don't know. It might, I don't know. She's just a fucking monster. I feel like she, I wish it could have been sterilized. I know. I don't know. I don't know if that's too harsh or not, but I can't even imagine she did this to her own sister. So why is she allowed to have children? She cannot be trusted around kids and she's got three of them. It's, I have no words. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's wrong. I, I don't know. It's, I feel like in a case like this, she should have been, she shouldn't have been allowed to have kids. I'm sorry, she just shouldn't have. Speaking of the transcripts, I went back and forth on it. I did record the transcripts and then erased it and then I did it again. And I was going back and forth. And I think I'm not going to include the transcripts because they're very, 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 very vulgar. I feel like if I read them, I might be violating some type of rule or agreement in the terms of service or something. I don't know. I don't want to get kicked out or or blocked or something shut down just in my second episode (laughs) just because of this stupid transcript. I was thinking if anybody is interested, um, maybe you can let me know. Maybe I can do something I can do it in a more private way, like a, maybe like a Patreon or I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I would do it. I do have the transcript, but I, like I said, I, I don't think I want to put it out there publicly because it, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's wrong. Anyway, moving on. So she started then going by different names. She went by the name Carla Leanne Teal. She went by Leanne Bordelais, Emily Bordelais, and Leanne Teal. I don't know what she's going by. It's reported she changed her name again or she's going by something else. I don't know what it is right now. Anyway, I I do have a letter she wrote to her friend Debbie Purdy. She wrote it two months after Tammy's death. And I want to read that one to you just so you can get a, a, a picture of how entitled she is. Also, so you can, because I also have another letter she wrote to her family. And so I want you to see the difference or hear the difference between the one she wrote to her friend and then the one she wrote to her family. And you can clearly see that she's manipulating. She's just manipulating everybody. She knows what to say. And the one to her friend is more honest. So here's the note. Here's what she said. 
fuck my parents they are being so stupid only thinking of themselves my father doesn't even want us to have a wedding anymore he thinks we should just go to city hall screw that we're having a good time if he wants to sit at home and be miserable he's welcome to he hasn't worked except for one day since tammy died he's wallowing in his own misery and fucking me it sounds awful on paper but i know you really see what i'm saying Tammy always said last year that she wanted a forest green Porsche for her 16th birthday. Now my dad keeps saying, I would have bought it for her if I'd only known. That's bull. If he really felt like that, he'd be paying for my wedding because I could die tomorrow or next year or whenever. He's such a liar. So this is what I'm saying. She's she's clearly very narcissistic. I, I wonder if she understands her parents are grieving or if she's just so entitled she thinks that all the focus should be on her now. Again, this I think this sort of supports what I was saying. She wanted to get rid of Tammy so that, so that, but in that specific sense, it was so Paul wouldn't have her anymore, so he wouldn't be fixated on her anymore. But I think it was also more than that. I think even like with her parents, you know, she's saying, what about me? You know, I could die today or tomorrow or next year. It's, it, I feel like she wants to be the center of attention. She wants to be the only one. And I think, I, I don't know, in a way, I think she's detached from reality, but then when I read the letter she wrote to her family, I think she does get it. She's just an asshole and manipulative, so I don't know. Uh, here, here, I'll read the next one. So, on April 13th, 1993, Carla was being uh, psychologically evaluated, and during that time, she wrote her family the following letter. Dear Mom, Dad, and Lori, this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write, and you'll probably all hate me once you've read it. I've kept this inside myself for so long, and I just can't lie to you anymore. Both Paul and I are responsible for Tammy's death. Paul was in love with her and wanted to have sex with her. He wanted me to help him. He wanted me to get sleeping pills from work and drug her with. To drug her with, sorry. He threatened me and physically and emotionally abused me when I refused. No words I can say can make you understand what he put me through. So stupidly, I agreed to do as he said. But something, maybe the combination of drugs and the food she ate that night, caused her to vomit. I tried hard to save her. I am so sorry. But no words I can say can bring her back. I have thought many times of killing myself, but I couldn't put you through the pain of losing another daughter and sister again. I don't blame you all if you hate me. I hate myself. I live with the pain of knowing I unintentionally killed my baby sister every day. I think that's the real reason I put up with Paul's abusive behavior. I felt I deserved it for allowing him to drug and rape my beautiful baby sister. I loved her so much and never wanted to do anything to hurt my Tammy skins. Please believe me, I would gladly give my life for hers. Nothing I can do or say can bring her back. I don't expect you to ever forgive me, for I will never forgive myself. Carla, XOXO. Do you hear the huge difference between the letter to her friend and the letter to her family? And first of all, in her the letter to her family, she's taking no responsibility. She's trying to put the whole thing on Paul, saying he made her do it. Then she's trying to make herself be the victim. Oh, I don't blame you if you hate me. I hate myself. I want to kill myself, but I don't because then you're going to suffer more. But she obviously doesn't care that they're suffering because she doesn't care her dad is grieving and doesn't go to work and won't even talk. It's all a manipulation. She's trying to totally also manipulate the narrative and saying she stayed with Paul because he was abusive. That's not why she stayed. 
and she would have probably continued to stay had her family not come in and took her away the way that they did when he beat her up so bad. There's so much bullshit in those letters, and she obviously is not sorry and has no ability to feel remorse. When her kids were of school age, it said that she was seen volunteering at her kid's school or like the PTA or something like that. And then once she was like identified, the press were alerted and then they just ended up telling everybody. So the public was just really angry that she was around children and they rallied together and they got her kicked out. But to me, it's just, she. it's scary that she's out in the world right now with you and me and everybody. And she's out there living a normal life after doing all of these heinous things, after saying everything she said. She has access to kids and she always will. She wasn't, I don't know, I feel like she could have at least been labeled as a danger to children or something at the very least. She wasn't. So there's no way to keep her away from ever doing this again to somebody else. And like I said, I mean, we can't even trust her with her own kids. Who knows what they've gone through? Who knows what she's done to them? I mean, can we talk about the husband situation? Like, why would she, why would he marry her? Why would he have kids with her? He obviously knew all the details. I mean, his cousin or whatever was her lawyer who knew everything, who was there and saw the tapes and he married her anyway. So it makes me wonder, is she or is he trying to kind of, get into that same type of stuff with her or something like that i don't know it's very it's very scary very disturbing i don't want to insinuate anything because i don't know but just it's after everything she said it especially like when it came to oh i want to have kids so we can abuse them it's really hard to put that together with the fact that yeah she actually does have kids now that she could abuse i don't know that it's just really upsetting so carla ended up getting the deal of a lifetime like I said, especially because she wasn't even convicted of Tammy's murder. She was never even convicted for any murder. She was convicted for manslaughter. Paul's going to stay behind bars he, where he belongs. He's he's a danger, and um, I don't think he'll ever change. So I'm really glad that he's in there, but I don't know. Carla's out there. She's out there, and it's, it's infuriating. And that's the story of the Ken and Barbie killers. Ending this episode is a little awkward because because the whole case is such a bummer but uh, i hope that you enjoyed it um for those of you who didn't know the story uh it's 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 really it's really crazy it, it almost seems like something that would be in a movie or a book or something sick twisted story but it's actually all true and um like I said, if you do want to hear those transcripts, or the tra I have one transcript that I could read, um, they really, really will highlight how much Carla, how much she really was involved, and how much she enjoyed it, and how much she was not in any way a victim, just a willing participant. And actually, she, like I said, she she initiated a lot of it too. So I, anyway, so if you're interested in that transcript, maybe I could even just email it to you guys. So if, uh, if you could just email me at crimecastlepod at gmail.com and I can send you the whole link. I could, I could actually link the, the transcript or just copy paste, whatever. Uh, I think that's about it. I, I don't have anything else to say. Uh, I did record. No, I, ha I haven't recorded. I have researched and I have everything set up for like three more episodes, I think. But I just haven't recorded it. I just need to record, which um, sometimes it's kind of hard to find a good time because you need it to be quiet and, and all that stuff. So 
I hope I'm hoping to be able to do that soon. I just kind of want to get a bunch of episodes out there. I know a lot of people stick to a sort of schedule, like maybe one episode a week or something like that. I'm I'm hoping to just kind of just push them out for now. I just I'd like to do maybe two to three a week. I don't know if that'll be possible, but for sure, for sure, it'll at least be one a week. So I think, yeah, I think that's all. It's a little awkward. Like I said, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to myself, but uh, yeah. So thank you for listening to me. Hopefully you come back. <laughs> okay. Bye.